0: Matthew 27 is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be the dead, rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that slept. This passage is found in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians from the most definitive and comprehensive lesson on the importance of the resurrection in the Bible Typically uh, I, I've gone on several uh, resurrection Sundays to First Corinthians 15 And we'll, we'll kind of jump in and out of it a little bit today uh, To remind us just how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is It's not enough that Jesus died on the cross to bear our sins If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he is not alive today If, he, if there was not a bodily resurrection, then there's no resurrection for you nor I then there is no eternal life. But if He did raise from the dead, then all of His promises that He gave to us, that He says He will give unto us, all of them will be fulfilled because Jesus conquered even death itself. And if He conquered even death itself, then nothing can oppose His authority. Today in our time together, we're going to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're going to do so first historically. So you're in Matthew 27, and we're going to walk through the passage and talk about what actually happened on that day. And then after we consider it historically, we're going to talk about the resurrection practically, what it means for us. And we're going to talk about uh, that in, in two different contexts, what it means for us as humans And then what it means for those who have accepted and believed the resurrection unto eternal life. We begin in Matthew 27. The Bible says in verses 1 and 2, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away. And delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So Jesus is arrested, you recall, and he's arrested by the chief priests and elders. Judas, having betrayed him the night before, they go to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they arrest him there. The leaders deliver him to Pontius Pilate. Now Pontius Pilate was a procurator over the region of Judea under the authority of Rome. Pontius would have been an ancient name. It would have shown his stock, his heritage. Pilate was actually um, his given name. And as a procurator of Rome, he answered to the emperor alone. He had direct responsibility over everything that happened all the way up unto the emperor. He possessed civil, military, and criminal jurisdiction in his region. As we continue through Matthew 27, the Bible says that Jesus... Uh, gave very little satisfaction to Pilate in regard to the charges and accusations against him. He was accused of insurrection, of treason, of being, um, of, of claiming to be the king of the Jews and so to overthrow the Roman Empire. And as Pilate is questioning him on these things, um, Jesus gives very little satisfaction. The Bible says in verse 12 of Matthew 27, answering nothing of the accusation of, of the chief priests. And verse 13 and 14 say that Pilate was astounded. That Jesus would hear these accusations. These accusations which were treasonous and worthy of death. And yet while hearing these accusations not defend himself. Say nothing in his own defense. And such a situation put Pilate in a very difficult position. He does not have the evidence that Jesus is dangerous or treasonous. He has evidence that Jesus said that, that he was... Um, Messiah, that he was the one who should come, but nothing in Jesus' actions or in Jesus' teachings would be uh, lend itself to insurrection against the Roman government. He has no evidence with which to accuse Jesus, but the Jewish leaders are insistent. And they cause a stir. Pilate knows that these Jewish leaders can cause him a great deal of angst. Of trouble. And so he looks for a middle ground solution. And he finds it in a custom which had arisen about the time of Passover. Where the people were allowed to release one prisoner from Roman captivity. Now from an objective perspective, this seems a little silly, doesn't it? I mean, imagine... This today. Now we, we have a, a similar idea. The president can pardon people. And the nearest thing we come to a regular traditional thing is the president pardoning a turkey every year at Thanksgiving, right? But imagine a system where every year, say in our, our country around the 4th of July, the people in any municipality could request one person to get out of jail or get out of prison. Now, from my own perspective, I don't know that I really like that idea, right? And most of the people that we have, we can't say all, but most of the people that we have in there are in there for a reason, and we don't see a bunch of people being taken out of their homes because they spoke against a governor or whatever and being thrown in prison and those sorts of things. Maybe they're getting an IRS audit against them or whatever, But but, but as far as actually being thrown in prison... In our country, most of the people that are there are there for for, for a reason. But we need to remember just how different the situation was in Judea. Israel was not its own government. They were under a foreign government. And not only that, but their government was... It's not just that their government was of Rome, but their government was made up of Romans. People that were not Jews. They lived under totalitarian rule They had few rights at all They were not Roman citizens Even though they lived in the Roman Empire They had no rights as Roman citizens And because of that There were regularly people Who were imprisoned for things That we would call unjust Who were imprisoned Just because they got on the wrong side Of some government leader Who were imprisoned Just because they said the wrong thing To a centurion as he walked by And so in a system such as that, this tradition, this Passover tradition of them being able to have one person released was really a lifeline of that society to getting somebody who was unjustly imprisoned out of prison. And so remember that as we think about this tradition, I've often, I had often read that and just thought, wow, I really wouldn't want that today. (laughs) But when you think about the situation they were in, it does make sense. And as we consider this situation, we read in verses 21 to 25 of Matthew 27. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather the tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. So Pilate sees no reason to accuse this man. He says, look, this man has done nothing wrong. But, as we just described, in a government where um, a totalitarian state is, is in place over a group of people, the Roman citizens had rights, the Jews did not. Pilate could condemn a man to death for nothing more than being alive. He wasn't inclined to do so, but the Jews wanted it, and so he granted it. You know the story. Jesus is led up to the crucifixion mount called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross and he along with two thieves, one on his left and one on his right, began the slow and painful process of death. And the Bible says that Jesus was crucified at the time of the morning sacrifice, which was the third hour of the day. In Hebrew culture and Jewish culture, the uh, 24-hour day is broken up into two 12-hour segments. The day begins at 6 p.m., begins at evening, and night goes from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And then they have the day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So 12 hours of night, then 12 hours of day, then night comes first, then the day. So by Jewish custom, the third hour of the day would have been 9 o'clock in the morning. That's when Jesus was crucified. That's when it began. And the Bible says that at the 6th hour of the day, that would be at noon, darkness covered the entire earth until the ninth hour of the day. So for 6 hours now, Jesus has been hanging on that cross. And at the ninth hour of the day, which was about the time of the evening sacrifice, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, He cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoting there the 22nd Psalm. His final words are recorded in Luke 23, verse 46. He says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then the Bible says he yielded up the ghost. Jesus, by request of the chief priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, was taken off the cross before the beginning of the next day, which was a Sabbath day. That would begin at 6 p.m. And so he was taken off the cross. And the Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 57, that he was taken down from off the tree and his body was given to a rich man who was also a follower of Jesus named Joseph, a man of Arimathea. And Joseph took his body and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, Matthew 27, verse 60. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. So Joseph puts his body in the tomb, rolls the stone to the sepulchre and then he leaves. But it's not enough for the chief priests and the scribes. They're concerned because they remember this promise that was made. That Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. So they asked Pilate to give them armed guard, 24-hour armed guard around the tomb to make sure that one of the disciples could not come in, steal his body, and then claim that he rose from the dead. Pilate grants the request. Armed guard, Roman guards in front of the tombs, 24 hours a day, guarding that tomb until after the third day. We pick up in Matthew 28, verse 1. The Bible says this. In the end of the Sabbath... As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment was white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men they passed out. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. He is risen, the angel told them, as he said. The tomb is empty. The dead is raised back to life. And not only is the dead raised back to life, but the dead is raised back to life on the third day, just as he said. By this we know not only did our Lord arise from the dead, not only did Jesus Christ do what he said he would do in that he rose from the dead, but he did it in the manner that he said it would take place on the third day. It was not an accident. It was not a fluke. It was a fulfillment of everything that he promised. Little, excuse me. Little can the human heart fully appreciate the magnitude of this moment. Not only to those grieving followers of Jesus Christ as they came and they saw the empty tomb and it confused them as much as it excited them. And Mary, we read in John, was weeping in the garden and a man comes up and asks her why she's weeping and she thinks it's the gardener and she says, if you know where they took my Lord, just tell me so that I can go get his body and so that I can take care of it. And then he says her name, Mary, and she realizes this is the Lord. She can't touch him he's not yet risen he's not yet ascended unto the father but he comes to tell her that he is indeed alive and the disciples see that and they know that the moment of Jesus's resurrection secured throughout the whole created order the promise of an undoing of the curse which was established through Adam's rebellion The creation, which right now, Bible says, groans and travails under the weight of the curse found in that day, hope and relief from torment, And the human race plagued by rebellion, tortured by sin, sorrow, pain, corruption, oppression, loss and death in that moment found the freedom it had longed for and the relief which it so desperately needed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a moment of victory over sin and death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ marked the beginning of the end for sin, the beginning of the end for all death. A moment in time which stands as an eternal monument to the prevailing power of God over every rebellious foe and the eternal love of God for the human race. a God who submitted to the curse to overcome the curse who submitted to death to overcome death but the Bible says not everyone will experience this relief as we have considered the event the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we spend most of our time today considering what it means for us what it means for you What it means for me. Because that's really why we have a day, right? That's why we have a holiday. That's why we do Resurrection Sunday. We don't do it just because of what happened. We do it because of what it means to us. We we observe the day because the day means something. It's special. It's important. Why is it so important? Well, as we consider why it's important, we consider this in two contexts. First, why is it important to every man, woman, and child who walks the, the, on the earth? Why is it important to, to us as children of Adam, as a rebellious human race? And then, once we've established why, that, why it's important to us as humans, then we'll establish why it's important to those who have accepted Christ. Why do we continue to care about the resurrection after we have come to believe that this took place. But let's begin at the beginning. The resurrection means, well first, the resurrection means salvation from the penalty of sin to all who believe. Salvation from the penalty of sin to all who believe. Now before we can speak directly to the penalty of sin, we must first direct our thoughts to a couple of ideas. Let's ask several questions in regard to this. Question number one, what is sin? It's an interesting question, isn't it? We throw that around a lot, the word sin. What is sin? Well, the Bible defines sin as missing the mark of the character, will, or word of God. We can rightly define sin as anything that I say, anything that I do, anything that I think that offends God's character, God's will, or God's word. The Bible says God is righteous, that God is holy. So sin is anything that does not meet God's standard And God's standard is perfection. If we really want to get basic with it, sin is everything that is not God. Sin is anything that is not what He is. God is perfect. God defines perfection. God defines holiness. So if it's not God, then it's not right. Then it's not holy. Then it's not righteous. Then it's sin. And that leads us to a second question. So what is sin? Sin is anything I say, anything I do, anything I think that offends the character of the nature of God. It's anything that's not God. The second question, well then who is a sinner? Well by the standard we just considered of what sin is, it becomes apparent that every person who has ever been born of a man and a woman is a sinner. We all do things that fall short of God's perfection as described in the Bible. And so Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no one, not among us, not in this country, not around the world, that in himself meets God's standard of perfection. There is no one who is not a sinner. The bar has been set and it's God and nobody meets it. We've all been tainted. None of us is pure. And so the Bible says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Perhaps you noticed how pretty definitive this verse is on the topic. None are righteous. That means you. None understand. That means you. None seek after God. That means you. All are gone out of the way. That includes you. All are become unprofitable. That includes you. None doeth good. That includes you. And just in case you, like most humans, could hear none and all and say most and think most, because that's how we humans are, Paul says, no, not one. You're one, so not you. You and I are sinners. You may do things that the society around us calls good, that the Bible calls good. You may give to help the needs of others. You may be kind to others. But this does not make you a doer of good, according to the Bible. It does not make you a good person, because you're already stained. If I have a stain on a tablecloth, I can wash that tablecloth, and I can clean it, and I can make it perfectly usable, but it's already stained. It's already tainted. That stain is already there. See, it really doesn't matter how many good things you do, because the first time you sinned, you were stained. You fell short of God's perfection. You were no longer holy. You're not a good person. You're not a righteous person by God's standard. Because all have sinned. And so we have come short of the glory of God. We are, by definition, sinners. So what is sin? Sin is anything that's not God. Who is a sinner? Everyone's a sinner. Question number three. What does sin do? This really... Starts digging down to the heart of the matter. Why does it matter that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner? Why does it matter that we've fallen short of God? I mean, okay, so God's perfect and we're not. Okay, that's, that's settled. Glad, glad, glad to hear that. But it does matter. Because God is just. And because God is just, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. You've sinned and I've sinned. Now, like when you get a job, and you go to that job, and you exchange time, skill, and effort for money. And at the end of the week, or the two weeks, or the month, you take the time that you have invested, and they give you a certain amount of money for that time, or for that effort. That's your wages. Well, we have sinned. And the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin... Is death. When the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of two interrelated concepts. First is physical death. The fact that you and I, uh, should the Lord tarry, will all die. That our bodies are deteriorating. And one day that body is going to stop working and we are going to be no more. But second, and more importantly, is the concept of spiritual death. A couple weeks ago, we covered the fact that you and I are eternal beings. We covered this when we were talking in Ecclesiastes about the reality of death. And that death is not the end because we are eternal beings. We have an eternal spirit. By this we know that our physical bodies, this is just the vessel in which we reside. But there's something more. Our physical bodies are temporal. They come and they go. One day we'll all be in the grave and, and we'll, our bodies will deteriorate and then it'll be gone. But there's a part of us that is eternal. And this part of us is far more important than our physical body. And when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, what it's saying is not simply that because of sin you're doomed to die a physical death, but also because of sin you're doomed to a spiritual death. And the Bible defines spiritual death as separation from God. And specifically in a place of of literal conscious torment called the lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, the Bible tells us, that this place which burns with fire and brimstone, the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, is the second death. Paul says in Second Th- Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, that the fire of God's vengeance will bring about everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. So this place is separated from the presence of God, separated from fellowship and relationship with God, and it is a place of, fire and brimstone and is called the second death and so there's two deaths that the Bible speaks of the first is a physical death the second is a spiritual death the first is when our bodies deteriorate and go to the grave the second is our spirits being separated from the presence of the Lord so what does sin do? The Bible says sin separates you from God. God is holy, you are not. God cannot have fellowship with that which is not holy. So because God is holy and you are not, God can't have fellowship with you. You are under spiritual death. You're separated from God. You cannot have a relationship with God because you're a sinner. And so every man in his natural state is separated From God unable to know him and on the path of eternal separation to this place of fire and brimstone called the lake of fire. And that brings us to our final question here. Well what must God do? We've mentioned already God is just and because he is just he must punish sin. So that this separation from God is not just an inconvenience to man, but it is a death sentence placed upon you because you are not righteous. Because the very character of God is holiness, all that is not holy must be discarded. And this puts you and I in a place of helplessness. Because even if you could stop sinning today so that you never once sinned again, so that you spent every day of the rest of your life doing everything to measure up to God's holiness, which is impossible, by the way. But if you, even if you did that, you're already tainted. You're already stained. You've already fallen short of God's perfection. And there's nothing you can do about that. So you and I are sinners. And because we are sinners, we are condemned to a sinner's eternity in separation from God and eventual conscious torment in a place called the lake of fire. But this day that we celebrate is not a day where we celebrate the fact that we're separated from God for eternity and we have no hope, right? That's not why we come here and we sing joyous songs and we smile and we say, he has risen, he has risen indeed. And the reason why is because of that day. Much to the contrary. Recall the recall the main point. That salvation from the penalty of sin is to all who will believe because of the resurrection. Because Jesus came to do for you what you could not do for yourself. See, it's hopeless for you. But God came to do it for you. What we could not do because we were weak in our inability to obey God's law, Jesus came and did for us. He lived a perfect life because he is God in flesh. He died so you don't have to. He suffered spiritual separation from God so that you don't have to suffer eternal separation from God. When we read in Matthew, Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was mourning the first time in the history of history that he was separated from the Father. A separation existed between the Son and the Father. And that separation had to take place. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus was made sin. Your sin and my sin was placed on Him. He had never known sin, but God made him sin. God reckoned him sinful. God counted him sinful. And so he poured out his wrath against his against sin on Jesus on that day. Jesus was separated from the Father, being declared sinful. And why? Why would God go through such torments? So that you and I could have the opposite. Jesus had never sinned but was declared sinful by God and separated from God so that you who cannot be righteous can be declared righteous and so saved from separation from God. Declared sinful and the wrath poured on Him so that we could be declared righteous and be saved from that wrath. Do you see the exchange? Christ made guilty so that you and I could be declared not guilty. Jesus paid the debt, a debt we could never pay so that we could be freed from that debt. But Jesus didn't just promise to pay the debt. In John 10, 28, he said this, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life he didn't just pay the debt he didn't just say okay now you can be declared righteous so that you can have fellowship with God today so that you can walk and talk with God on this earth only to die and then be in the grave but he was declared he he declared us righteous and then he says I give unto my sheep to those that know me eternal life and no man can pluck him out of my hand Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt and that is a wonderful thing but what that payment debt does not do it makes us righteous, it allows us to have a relationship with God, but it doesn't give us eternal life. So that if Jesus had died to shed and shed his blood for our sins and paid the penalty for our sins and gone into the grave, he would have paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled unto God and then we die and that would be it. But that's not it. And the reason why it's not it is because he isn't dead. And that brings us back to where we began this morning in our sermon I quoted from 1 Corinthians 15, 17-20. And that last verse says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. If Jesus is dead, there's no resurrection. Then we are lost. Our faith is vain. None of this is worth anything. We're all wasting our time. But if Jesus is alive, if the tomb, which was found empty was empty. If he was seen of Peter and of the apostles and of 500 at one time, which he was, 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus arose from the dead, then so too can we one day. And on that day, Jesus fulfilled the great promise that he made in John 14 verses 2 and 3. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Why did Jesus have to die? Because you and I are sinners, incapable of having a relationship with God. Why did Jesus have to raise from the dead to give unto us eternal life, that where He is, there we may be also. And so of course the next question is the big one. What must I do to be saved? It's the very question that was asked of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. And their answer was simply this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the debt for your sin. On that day, the debt... For your sin, on the day that Jesus died on the cross, the debt for your sin was transferred from God the Father who demanded sinless perfection to God the Son who asks only one thing of you to receive eternal life. He asks that you confess that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, to believe that Jesus is God and that he died for you, that he rose again the third day as he promised, and to accept this gift by rejecting anything or, and everything else that you might be trusting in. To secure yourself favor with God. It's only by Him alone, by His gift alone, by His finished work alone, that you can be saved. And so Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved he that believeth is not condemned excuse me he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god jesus was clear everyone who has not accepted the gift of christ is living in a state of unbelief every man is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten son of god this is the default state This is where the majority of the people in the world rest today. And if as we sit here today, you realize that you have never accepted that free gift of salvation which Jesus offers. Perhaps you have believed on Jesus, but you've always added something to the equation. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus doing good things. Jesus plus morals. Jesus plus fill in the blank. Can't do that. Doesn't work that way. It's not Jesus plus. If you are if you have a plan B, if you're trusting in anything else, then you've never believed on Jesus Christ as the Bible has told you to believe. There are many people in this world in this community who know that Jesus is God but when the question is asked what will get you to heaven they say something like because I'm a good person or they say something like because I've done more bad things than good things because I think my good will outweigh my bad or they say something like well because God is a kind God and he would never send me to hell none of those answers are sufficient how is it that a man can know he's on his way to heaven Because Jesus Christ is God. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And in doing so, he secured for us salvation and everlasting life. And there's nothing I can do to get myself there. But that's okay because he's done all the work and I believe that with all my heart. And I'm resting my eternity on that. That's called faith. Faith is not when you know something. Faith is when that something becomes real. Faith that a chair can hold me up is not faith if I say, I believe that chair can hold me up and then I sit in the chair next to it. Right? I believe this chair can hold me up. There's no proof. There's no faith. I believe that chair can hold me up. That's me saying something. That's a claim. When does it become faith? When I sit in the chair. That's when, that's when it becomes faith. When does belief on Jesus become true belief? It's not when you say Jesus died and rose again. It's when you stake your eternity on it. It's when you say yes, and there's no plan B. And there's no safety net. Jesus all the way. He's the only way. And I believe it. That's faith. It's when you put all your eggs in his basket. And so the question becomes, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you living with a plan B? Are you living in faith plus something else? Have you tacked something on just in case? Or have you truly rested your full faith and trust in what Jesus has already done to see you to heaven? The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've not done it, would you make today the day? In the rest of our time together today, I want to speak to believers. Legacy Baptist Church uh, by and large every week we have majority believers that come and I I don't want to not give you the importance of the resurrection for you. See salvation was first from the penalty of sin. Resurrection means salvation from the penalty of sin to all who believe. This will give way to being completely saved one day from the presence of sin so that we'll be in heaven with our Lord and sin will not be be in, in the equation at all. But to we who are in Christ and only, and only to those who are in Christ, you have also been saved from the power of sin if you will submit to Christ. It's a sad state of affairs that even among the many who have been redeemed from the penalty of sin by grace through faith, most are still submitting themselves to the power of sin in their lives on a daily basis. But the power of the resurrection does not just extend to eternal life. The power of the resurrection is supposed to touch the life of every believer every single day. See, the Bible says that when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are spiritually buried with Christ. You assume His death. And then you are raised, and the Bible says, to walk in newness of life. Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as are baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. This is not speaking of... Water baptism. This is speaking of salvation. Spiritual baptism. We've talked about that before. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so we also should walk in newness of life. Salvation is not a get out of hell free card. Salvation is not just, okay, now I don't have the punishment so I can live however I want because I know that daddy's going to bail me out. Paul says much rather that when we accept Jesus Christ as our savior, we are spiritually associated with his death and with his resurrection. Our old man is killed and buried and our spirit is resurrected unto newness of life. And now we're going to go to the passage where we'll spend the rest of our time. Please turn to Colossians chapter 2. And in Colossians chapter 2, beginning of verse 12, we read this. Buried with him in baptism. The same idea. And this is, again, speaking of spiritual Holy Spirit baptism. It's not speaking of the water, which washes away the filth of the flesh. We know that from 1 Peter. Buried with him in baptism. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled all principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Jesus claimed victory over all things, and in that victory, the Bible says he took away our guilt, he took away our condemnation, and he made us alive in him. So it's not just that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you get a a, your, your your ticket punched. To heaven it's that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, your spirit was literally made alive that there was there's a spiritual part of you which was dead and now it is made alive that you receive a resurrection unto a new creation. And what should our understanding of Jesus' resurrection and our relationship unto it, the fact that we have been made alive in Him, what should that mean for us today? What should that mean for us tomorrow and every day? Well, we continue in Colossians 3, where the Bible says this, beginning in verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, and if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been risen with Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ, the Bible says... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. What Paul is saying is this. If if you are dead to sin... If you have died and been risen with Christ, if you're dead to sin, then let sin be dead to you. If you are dead to sin let sin be dead to you. If you are dead to sin and risen with Christ so that you can live in the power of his resurrection, then seek that with all of your heart. Set your affection on the things above. Determine that all of your love and all of your loyalty will rest exclusively on the things that please God. Knowing that when Christ appears, so too will we appear with him in glory. Knowing that on that day, the only value of the life that you have lived on this earth is the value of that which goes with you if you're dead to sin let sin be dead to you Paul goes on mortify kill that's what that means mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth fornication uncleanness inordinate affection evil concupiscence covetousness which is idolatry for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, Circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. But Christ is all and in all. If Jesus has risen from the dead, and he is risen from the dead. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you have died and have risen with him. Your spirit has been made alive in him. Paul says, then kill the deadness. Scrape it off. Get rid of it. The part that's dead, get it out. Cut it out. Remove it. It's not doing you any good. It's dead. It's just going to hurt you. Cut it off. When you're tending trees, this time of year... Trees are beginning to bud and bloom. You find the dead branches and you get them off. Anything that's dead on the tree, you prune it off. You, you cut off the dead weight. You get rid of it. It's not good for the tree. It's not helping the tree in any way. It's just hindering things. Paul says, "If you're dead, if you died with Christ, and now you've risen with Him, look, cut off the dead stuff. Get rid of the bad stuff." He starts with sexual sin. He says fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. These are all speaking of sexual impurities. Desiring that which is not within God's design for the body and for uh, human interaction as far as sexual sin. Evil concupiscence. That's not a word we use very often in the word. But it speaks of wanting that which is unpure and wicked. Concupiscence. Desiring that which is impure. Covetousness. Wanting that which others have. And Paul says, and by the way, that's idolatry, which God hates. He says, these are the very sins which define the evil upon which God's wrath burns hot unto judgment. And if these are the very things that God hates with all of his heart, and you have been buried with Christ and risen with him, then get rid of them. If these sins define the essence of what it means to love self and to follow self, if these sins are the essence of what an unbeliever is defined by, then you and I have no business living in them. Reject them. Mortify them. Cut it out. You're dead to sin. Let sin be dead to you. Now we've talked about fornication, uncleanness, concupiscence, covetousness, those things, but then notice what he continues to say. He says... Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, lying. Get rid of those two. It's not according to truth. That's not according to God. Cut it out. Get rid of it. You can. You've been set free from it. Remember, you died. And you've been risen again in Christ. You have a new, quickened spirit. A spirit that's been made alive by God. So that you can have that power to overcome sin. So do it. He continues, verses 12 through 24. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, that's love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as unto the Lord, and not unto men." Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the Lord Jesus. That's a list. Pastor, what you're saying is impossible. No, it's not. Not if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. That list is not just possible. It's expected. It's your opportunity. It's your privilege. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. This is what it means. That list, that is what it means to live in the power of the resurrection. This day, when we say He is risen, He is risen indeed. This day, when we go through and we talk about the resurrection and we sing about the resurrection, all of that is wonderful, but it only means something if you live in it. The power of the resurrection is not in singing songs about it. The power of the resurrection is not in talking about it the power of the resurrection is in living it that's the power of the resurrection that's what happened on that day the very fact that Jesus' tomb is empty and that no one has ever found his body except walking around under its own power and teaching them and then ascending into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father the very fact that that happened tells me and tells you that this list that Paul just gave can be done Because the power that raised him from the dead is the power that you have over sin in your life if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you haven't, then it's the power you could have if only you'll believe. And so, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this day, the question is, are you living in that power? Are you loving one another? Not because they deserve it, but because Jesus Christ has loved you and you are risen with Christ. Are you forgiving one another? Not because they deserve it, but because Christ forgave you and you are risen with Christ. Are you thankful in all things? Not because circumstances are all perfect, but because God's grace rests upon you through the resurrection. Are you obeying your parents' children? Not because your parents are always right. Not because you like everything that your parents are asking you to do. But because it pleases God. And you have the power to please God through the resurrection. Are you submitting to your husband, wives? Not because it's easy. Not because he's always right. But because it's always right. And you have the power to do right through the resurrection. Are you loving your wife? Not because it's always easy. Not because she's always right. But because it's always right through the power of the resurrection and so everything you do whether it be school or a job or a chore an obligation do you do it to the best of your ability heartily the Bible says as unto the Lord because the resurrected Lord is worthy of your best so what does the resurrection mean it means first that you're saved from the penalty of sin if you will but accept that salvation through belief alone then, what does it mean? What does the resurrection mean? It means that as a believer, you can be saved from the power of your sin today. Buried with Him by baptism into death. Raised to walk in newness of life. Are you walking in that newness of life today? As I've preached, as we read Colossians 3. Is there a piece of deadness that the Holy Spirit put on your your heart and said... That needs to go. That's dead. That needs to be cut out. You are risen with me. You are new in Christ. Get rid of it. Would you get rid of it today? If there's a piece of you and the Holy Spirit said, look, in this avenue of life, you're not doing it. You're not doing what I've asked you to do. You're living in the deadness. Even though you've been risen with Christ, would you cut out the deadness? Would you respond To the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications upon your life today. The resurrection is not just about what happened back then. And the power of the resurrection certainly does not stop the day you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. The power of the resurrection is the power in which we live day in and day out. Because he's risen, so too are we. And if we are risen, if ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above not on things on the earth. Let's pray together.